Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. This is the first one we've done after the live show. It is, and, and uh, we very yeah, much enjoyed it. We did. Uh, we did. Um, the live show itself will come out as a podcast at a later date. But yeah. um, I thought I could tell a little story about something that happened after the live show. Yes. So um, I'd mentioned that a few people were yeah. hanging around wanting selfies with yeah. you, which I know you always yeah. enjoy. So you'd gone out to yeah. meet them. And somebody came up to me and they said, Jeff, can I have a selfie yeah. with you? And I said, are you just asking me this out of pity? And he said, yes. Yes, I am. So I said, so am I right in thinking that you don't really want a selfie with me? No. He says, no, I was just waiting waiting for one with Ed, really. So I said, so should we not do it? Because otherwise it's just going to take up your time, like deleting it <laughs> off your phone afterwards. And he went, yeah, I think you're, you're probably right. That's terrible. <laughs> Joel, how many times have I told you not to do that? <laughs> I'm really sorry. I feel terrible. No, no, it was now. funny. It, it was all very good natured. It was making me laugh a lot. There were lots of people who asked for selfies with me, but really wanted you in it. I know, but I think people are thinking to themselves, "Well, I suppose I can always crop it at a later date." No, I don't think that's true <laughs> at all. Um, uh, I, the the what amusing byproduct of the live show for me was that you were looking for things to have indicative votes on, and one of them was about well whether my we, our family should get a dog, which my children would quite like. Um, but also what their bedtime should be. And this caused some sort of, am I allowed to say a brouhaha? A brouhaha. A, a little right, bit of a brouhaha, a yes. uh, stramash in the house because you had a vote on whether they should be stayed, allowed to stay up till 8pm to watch documentaries, as they put it, yeah. uh, very responsibly. So then we had the vote and it was overwhelmingly, obviously, plain mm. to the crowd that they should be allowed to stay up. But then there was a sort of slightly awkward um, sort of situation where, it was like they were. They were like, "Well, okay. Well, that's the decision then." So it got to bedtime, the normal bedtime, which is well, it got to being on the way home from the right. tube and it being whatever it was, six something, and them saying, "Oh, well, we can stay up till eight, can't we?" I said, "No," and they said, "Well, we just had a vote." So this has shaken their faith in democracy, or me, I think. <laughs> No, but it's quite an interesting parenting lesson because I've then discussed it further. And apparently what I should have done is I should have said, um, when I was on the stage playing to the crowd, I went, oh, right, I must have said something affirmative. So they got the signal that this was okay and the dad was sort of saying, fine. Whereas I should have said, well, you know, we'll definitely think about it. 
So or I should have been. It's more only con- an advisory vote. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I should, or, or maybe we want a second one. I, I should have been more conditional. Right. Do you see what I mean? Well, there we go. I, fe- I, I was feeling bad because it had caused you a little bit of familial disharmony, but now I feel good because you've learned a lesson. I definitely have learned a lesson. I think it was quite an interesting lesson. Yeah, actually, yeah. That I was too much. I was too much like, well, here's the sort of show reality and I'll be, that's fine. And then having no intention of putting it into effect. <laughs> so there we go. Good. And we're going to be doing another live show. People we... can buy tickets for the June 23rd one. Yes. Yeah, it's another one on the South Bank in London, yeah. but we're going to get yeah. a few more. Tickets selling well. fast. Yes, they are actually. Yeah. We're not just saying that straight. <laughs> no, <exactly. laughs> not just to encourage panic buying. No. So this week's episode then. So we're talking about a subject close to your heart and mine something fashion something <laughs> on which we're both I'm, I'm trying to say the word expert and it's somehow not coming out yeah. of my mouth something on which we both have thoughts so i don't think anybody has a photograph either of either me or you on their pinterest board when they're trying to work out what their look for the next season is going to be no but you know i've got suddenly thought something which mm. is that there is a i won't embarrass him but there's a journalist for a newspaper whose wife watched me in to be wife watched me in the tv debates and decided that that was the look she wanted for her husband for their wedding day really yeah what were you wearing it was some kind of suit and a tie i mean that's not a great departure from what a lot of people wear on the wedding day apparently it was a good look wow which I take no credit for. Well, well, maybe you are on somebody's Pinterest board yeah. then. Um, but we need to be clear here. We're not talking about fashion in the in the sense of how do Ed and I become fashion icons. We are talking about fast fashion. Now, what, what is fast fashion? Well, this is the buy it, wear it, once, throw it away culture. There's sort of mind-boggling numbers on this and mind-boggling sort of injustices. I mean, the numbers in relation to the environment are that – clothes and the selling of clothes and the production of clothes is responsible for more carbon emissions than aviation and shipping put together it's unbelievable i mean it's kind of un- it is yeah, unbelievable yeah, because it's not something you hear talked about and and, it, and it's something like thirteen thousand to twenty thousand liters of water go into the production of one t-shirt which is shocking isn't it it's because lot, of the yeah. cotton and you know the water for the cotton and all that to grow the cotton and then the social sort of disaster people remember the rana plaza disaster in bangladesh uh, more than a thousand people killed in a sort of sweatshop you know but that's just the sort of the the kind of worst manifestation of it you know lots of lots of people doing these jobs in the developing world in terrible conditions so it's a real issue and we'll be looking for solutions and we've got a great lineup we've got lucy siegel environmental journalist and reporter from the one show Orsala de Castro, co-founder of Fashion Revolution, and my colleague Mary Cray, chair of the Environmental Audit Select Committee, which did a report on this whole issue recently published. Can I just say, as Ed started talking about fast fashion, you might have heard, I don't know if it will pick up on the microphones, as a siren. I just want to show people it wasn't the fashion police. It was just I think that we've, it was, we've just got the windows open as we record the podcast today. And then after all that, we are joined by comedian Josh Berry, who is also an impressionist. And I hear he can do a very good impersonation of a former Labour leader. And it's not Harold Wilson. So what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, mine is actually about last week's episode because it was about university admissions and who gets into university, who gets into Oxford, Cambridge, other universities. And blow me down. uh, (laughs) Blow me down. If... uh, Is that a new... It's another one along with Crikey and Crumbs. Do people not say blow me down? I don't don't think, you know, for the past few decades. I don't think it's been a common usage. Blow me down if, I say again, if... uh, Oxford doesn't announce an expansion of this Foundation Year scheme. V, who was on the podcast, was part of the Foundation Year scheme. And in the, you know, very nice of Oxford to do this, to time, to to coincide it with our episode, bump up the numbers, Uh, it announced that it was expanding the Foundation Year. I think only to six colleges so far. So I think they need to do a bit better. But I think Cambridge is talking about rolling out across the university. But at least it's a start. What's yours? My reason to be cheerful this week is uh, it's, it's a slightly odd one on the face of it. I went to a funeral. My friend Brian um, died recently, and I went to his funeral. 
on Monday. And and first of all, the setting was incredible. It was at the University of Sussex in Brighton. And it was in the, the meeting house there. It's this beautiful, um, modernist building with loads and loads of windows which each are coloured glass so you got all this coloured light coming in which was very appropriate because he'd, he'd been a lighting designer um that was his job and he was of some renown he'd worked with everyone from manic street preachers coldplay britney spears carol king i mean he was very very well respected but it was just one of these funerals where as people got up and talked about him firstly you realize that he'd lived 10 lives. He'd been an extra in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I never knew that about him. But just how much he'd touched other people. He'd mentored lots of people in his industry and, and you know, there was just a lot of love in the room for him. But uh, the reason I, I thought I'd mention it was because he was diagnosed with cancer almost 10 years ago and he's treated the last decade as a bonus decade and him and his wife tracy they traveled a lot they saw the world they sailed they had he was an ama- love- amazing man and and then he spent this time he called it his cancer bonus tour he toured the country going back to venues that he had visited in his professional life raising money for for these causes close to his heart which had given him this bonus this sort of extra 10 years and he really appreciated it and um, what an amazing bloke yeah. and he i met him a few months ago yeah he was Sarah's show Sarah's show. Yeah, I, mean, you know, and I really enjoyed talking. Committed to him and his socialist, wife. born in the same house as Ramsay McDonald. Just an amazing man called Brian Leach. Well, I'm really sad for you. And but it was, you know, wife. people talk about these things being celebrations, and often they can't help but be somber affairs. Yeah. And, and it was just really beautiful and really uplifting. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To start our conversation, I'm delighted to say that we are joined on the line by Lucy Siegel, who's an environmental journalist and reporter on The One Show and author of a number of books, including To Die For, Is Fashion Wearing Out the World? Lucy, thank you so much for joining us. It is a pleasure. Let me start by asking how many pairs of jeans you own and why that is an OK question to ask for this topic. It's a pivotal question. <laughs> we all have too many pairs of jeans. Or you, maybe you don't yourself, but, you know, cumulatively, if someone's got 19 pairs of jeans for you. Do you know what I mean? So we're, yeah. it's out of control, the amount of garments that we are buying. And jeans are where I really started this because I noticed this was back in probably about 2009 when I started really researching the fashion industry, I had 19 pairs of jeans. And only one or two did I actually like. So I I saw the immediate disparity between the amount of products I had and number of wares. And I started to worry about what had got into making the 17 pairs of jeans, which I didn't really care for and didn't really fit me properly. And what I would do with them what afterlife they would have because I realised that they had a big environmental footprint. I felt bad. So you've written a lot about the idea of fast fashion, which is maybe characterises the industry. Talk to us about fast fashion and slow fashion. I mean, I think I might be a representative of slow fashion, but perhaps sort of unintentionally. Well, good for you if you're a representative of slow fashion. We all need to be uh, representatives of slow fashion. So fast fashion is a rapid system of production and manufacture, which is trend driven. So it's really um, decided by what is in fashion, which is getting faster and faster and faster. And it's sped up the cycle. So all the old qualities and characteristics that we associate with garments, such as their durability, the input of craft and their resilience have all been sort of pushed out of the frame in favour of getting something that's bang on trend. And that also includes fabric choices. Now, uh, one of the characteristics of fast fashion is it's super fast, but it's also super cheap. So we've experienced uh, deflation in clothing prices over the last 30 years. The upshot of this is that we no longer have a textiles industry in the UK, when obviously we used to have a very significant industry in the UK, and that production has offshored, and it's offshored to low-wage economies. 
So when I wrote my book back in 2011, I estimated that 80 billion new garments were produced every year in the fast fashion, predominantly in the fast fashion system. And now, uh, according to a recent McKinsey report, we're up to about 120 billion garments a year. Wow. So the problem that we have, as we do with all overproduction, is that there's nowhere for them to go. Another thing about fast fashion is that we've seen garments shift from durable, because clothing should be considered a durable item, into consumable. So it's almost regarded like you would a bottle of shampoo or whatever and they are disposed of at an ever increasing rate which means we have a massive fast fashion waste problem and waste is endemic in the fashion system so that's fast fashion in a nutshell the difference slow fashion is obviously to subvert all those qualities a different system of production which you hope will engender a different response in the consumer so that we value our garments we keep them in our wardrobes longer the price point tends to be higher because we don't have all the subsidies that are in the fast fashion system where we don't pay for the environmental chaos that we create. But the consumer has to offset that with increased price per wear. How recent is this trend, Lucy? Uh, you know, is it our parents' generation, their parents' generation? I mean, it's, it's, it's got a lot worse. Yeah, it's got faster and faster. So really, we've been in the grip of fast fashion proper for at least two decades, possibly nudging into three decades now since we started to offshore production. It's got much faster very recently because social shopping, so shopping for fashion on phones, for example, and on um, platforms like Instagram, where you can just swipe and you know, touch the screen and you've bought the thing, that is the new way that consumers are being targeted. And with social shopping and, and these platforms, it, it, it sort of inculcates a sort of competitiveness as well. And then you hear young people sometimes saying, I, I can't be seen in this again because I've been photographed on Instagram or whatever. The purpose of clothing and the thing that made it sustainable is being subverted. I understand that individual change has to be a huge part of this. We should be mending things. I understand the individual change. What what could governments be doing better? Well, there's a lot, really, because, you know, who's going to put the brakes on? Who's going to say you can't have these financial schemes that allow people to, to purchase really quickly and build up debt? Um, so the trouble is that we've allowed... The fashion sector, because it's kind of fun, it's always seen as really dynamic and a bit innocuous. I don't think it's been taken that seriously because I think its impact has been undervalued. We've allowed it to mark its own homework, um, which it's done with relish. But interestingly, a report just came out a couple of weeks ago, which is it was really considered like an industry report, saying that all of these initiatives that the fashion sector has been allowed to set up in place of actual legislation are not working and they're not on course to cut their emissions at the speed they need to cut their emissions. So it almost feels to me like the fashion industry is asking for some sort of constraints and intervention, whether it's levies on waste or it's to do with actually setting targets for the industry. We need to be much, much stronger and recognise and account for the impact that this industry is having. What kind of targets would we be talking about for the industry, Lucy? Well, I've got a, a kind of weird idea, but... Oh, go yeah. on, yeah. We love weird <laughs> ideas on this, on this podcast, yeah. Okay, bear with me. So No idea is too weird for this well, podcast. Well, I'll try you. But so, so basically, you've got all these carbon um, reduction targets, so decarbonisation. I think, honestly, yeah. the problem with the fashion industry is volume. So 120 billion new clothes each year from Virgin Resources is absolutely bonkers. Like nobody needs to get dressed that many times, you know. It is all of this waste, all of this impact is happening, which we're all cleaning up, by the way. Um, and citizens in low-wage economies and developing countries are really bearing the blunt of it. So we, we need to set them volume reduction targets. That's how we should be looking at this problem. Interesting. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure, like, 
uh, free marketeers will absolutely love this idea. But, but that's the only way that we're going to solve this. A lot of the big brands in fast fashion are pretending that they're going to recycle their way out of this. Okay, so the circular economy is going to do the heavy lifting for them. But actually, um, there's been a lot of research by scientific researchers looking at materials and textiles in particular, which shows why that is not really going to work. It's a volume issue. It's like energy use. You know, for alternative uh, renewable energy to work, you really need to tackle usage overall. I mean, I tell you what I think is really interesting about this conversation is that, you know, we've got this uh, recommendation from the Climate Change Committee to have zero emissions by 2050. If we were really serious about this, we would have... Uh, carbon budgets, not just for the government or the country as a whole, but for each department, each industry would have to take its place within that thing. So, you know, in a way you could say, well, uh, how is the fashion industry going to get to zero emissions? I mean, that's yeah. the question, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Are there anything like answer to that question? No, I mean, you know, even in the recent um, Environmental Audit Committee evidence sessions, a couple of the retailers just famously didn't turn up. So, you know, what could, what could we do about this? And I think that those brands that like to message that they are ahead of sustainability, I think there's a lot of smoke and mirrors going on. Now, let's talk a little bit about the individual, because we, we, I'm sure you're right, it's about government action. As we've been speaking, I have taken my sort of fashion into my own hands and downloaded the Depop app. yes. Tell us about what individuals can do and tell us about Depop. I, I really like Depop because Depop is a kind of cool way of uh, flogging your, your old clothes, basically. And, and buying other and people's. And buying other presumably. people's, exactly. But you can, if you've got an entrepreneurial mind and you know how to use social media properly, which obviously I don't. And it's all things like, you know, how you hold the shoe in the photograph. You know, it's like, will make a difference to how oh people... Lord. Oh, honestly, it's a whole new science, honestly. But there's value in it so the whole thing with with ethical fashion or sustainable fashion and slow fashion is that we're sort of saying it's going to be reductive it's going to be less good it's going to be less appealing and you know all the joy is going to go out of it and i think depop for me puts the joy back in and you can start it's exciting will people bid on your your shoes or whatever what can you find on there what can you discover how can you market it and it's really good for younger people who've got a, a slightly entrepreneurial kind of mindset but know a lot about style and fashion they can really showcase that um so i really like that mechanism of basically giving old clothes new value well, look, I've just signed up as Jeff Lloyd, and uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to see how it goes. Lucy, what else can individuals do? I would say the first thing to do is to follow my hashtag 30wares rule. Do not pass go. Do not hand your card over if you cannot commit to wearing an item 30 times, at the very least, because that's telling you that you don't need it, basically. So for some people, that will seem like a terrible ordeal. And for some people are like, what, I've had this jumper for 30 years, never mind 30 times. So it's a good metric, just a clear thing to start out with. It's bad news for people who get t-shirts printed for Hindus. Especially if you're still wearing them when the couple split up which is what the slow fashion <laughs> option will be. It's going to be awkward. So that's the thing, you see, when you, when you get a piece of clothing, when you accept a piece of clothing into your life, it's for better or for worse, and you take responsibility. So if you've got something with someone's name on it, it's like, a bit like getting a tattoo. You better be real because you, you're stuck with that. And the best thing that you can do, I think, is join a rental service. So rent the runway, her H U double R. There's there's lots of different rental platforms um, coming up. If you've got a wedding to go to this summer, a big event, do you want to buy a whole outfit? No, you don't really. Imagine just being able to rent one for the weekend that was kind of absolutely just brilliant, like really fabulous pieces. Then you give them back, and also you can get involved in that a little bit like Depop. You can run your own sort of little business from that as well. So you, if you invested in a in a coat that was more than you would usually pay imagine that you would be able to rent that out and reclaim some of the value back we have a thing on the podcast called the jeffocracy talking of weird things Lucy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, which is, is a utopia with me as a, a benign leader and if we were to appoint you minister for fashion because neither ed 
or, or I would have a clue. Um, what is the first thing you would do? You should at be a minister for sustainable fashion. Yes, yes. Yeah. But I think all fashion. Or slow should, fashion. I think all fashion should be both slow and sustainable. Right. So right. let's just keep it as minister for fashion. Yeah, implicit. Yeah. So, so what? It, what is the first thing you would do day one? I haven't thought about this at all. Obviously, I'd come. <laughs> I'd come up with some like card, like you know, like a voucher card for Waterstones or what you know, other yeah. other purveyors are available. And yeah. you'd have you'd have your budget for the year on that fashion card, and you could spend it how you wished, but there'd be uh, some incentive if you bought yeah. things that you were then going to rent out. Because people are really competitive, especially about style and fashion, you can supplement your carbon, your your fashion budget by making your own pieces, adding your own pieces, customising pieces. So we just basically reward people for being really creative and giving pieces an extra life. Lucy, that is brilliant. I think she's got the job, don't you, Jo? Definitely, yeah. When do I start? Yeah. The dawn of the brave new world of the Jeffocracy. Okay. As soon as it happens, you're on speed dial. Lucy Siegel, you've been great. Thanks so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. On the line now, we have Ursula de Castro from Fashion Revolution, which is a campaign for reform of the fashion industry. Ursula, thank you for uh, talking to us. And I wondered if you could start by telling us the story of what led you to set up Fashion Revolution and what Fashion Revolution is. I've always been working in this um, space, in the sustainability, in fashion field, since I was uh, a designer. And Fashion Revolution was very much born as a direct result of the Rana Plaza disaster. Carrie Summers, Fashion Revolution's co-founder, called me just after the disaster saying, you know, something must be done. And we all felt that way. Any one of us who had been involved in, in this particular area felt that the Rana Plaza disaster was both predictable and avoidable. And we all felt that something strong needed to happen. So for people who don't know, what what was the Rana Plaza disaster? Well, so the Rana Plaza disaster um, happened in Dhaka, Bangladesh in 2013. And it was the worst fashion industrial disaster in history. 1,138 People were killed and over 2,500 were injured. And this was because the factory complex they were working in was not safe. What I guess makes it all the more poignant was that the garment workers were aware of the fact their workspace was not safe. So many people died. Those things that they were making while feeling unsafe were nevertheless shipped out of the factories and reached our stores. And the Rana Plaza disaster would have been preventable had we had more transparency in the fashion supply chain and had we listened to the people that were fearing for their lives while in their place of work. Just, just for the benefit of our listeners, if we take the social and the environmental sort of changes that are needed separately, on the social side, presumably this is about some pretty basic things about respect for workers' rights, people being able to work in non-hazardous conditions and not using child labour, that sort of suite of measures. Is that right? It's safety in the workplace. It's, uh, you know, education for their children. It's absolute, uh, you know, payment of of overtime and and, uh, and a dignified living wage. And what progress have we made in the fashion industry on that side of things, would you say, since Rana Plaza, for example? Not huge. I mean, you know, there have been brands that have been committing to paying a living wage, and we all know that they've not succeeded. You know, one of the one of the deadlines was actually 2018. And although there has been an increase in certain factories that are piloting either, you know, equal pay for men and women, for instance, which is also uh, really not <laughs> very standardized in this industry, but also, you know, the, the paying garment workers, you know, fairly certainly more than a minimum wage. But it's not, it's complicated due to the fact that there are multiple brands producing in many of these factory clusters and therefore some brands will be demanding the, the living wage and others won't won't be taking it into their considerations. And then on the environmental side, it's maybe clearer to our listeners what the answers are on the social side, but on the environmental side, give us a sense of the of the sort of different answers that there could be to the 
fact that, you know, fast fashion is responsible for lots of carbon emissions and has all these problems. At Fashion Revolution, our hashtag, who made my clothes, which is really about, you know, giving visibility to supply chain workers, is huge and has been really effective in in creating more dialogue and further connections um, on the social aspect. But when it comes to the environment, there is something that we can do every day when we wake up. And that is to think that, you know, the fashion supply chain starts with our own wardrobes. So to understand what we buy and and what their environmental impact is, is hugely important. You mentioned the the hashtag, who made my clothes. You know, our listeners often want to get involved in the ideas we talk about. You've got something called Fashion Revolution Week. What, What is a way that people can engage with this? If you go on our Fashion Revolution website, um, which is www.fashionrevolution.org, we are so imaginative when it comes to giving um, our audience and citizens ways to become involved because we understand that fashion is really individual. So what works for one isn't going to work for somebody else. You know, it could be about really focusing on secondhand, on mending, on repair, But we equally have ways that citizens can really keep their brands accountable from reading our fashion transparency index to um, sending one of our postcards to the brands. Again, you can do it on our website, um, ensuring that brands do let us know who makes our clothes. Uh, Ursula, one one last thing. We have a thing on the podcast. It's a paradise found. It's a utopia called the Jeffocracy with me as a a supreme leader. Now, if you were... (laughs) If you were appointed Minister for Fashion... and That's I think, my reaction as well, I think, Ursula. I think I would be very hands-off in this particular ministry. What is Let's the, hope so, my goodness. <laughs> I don't want you as the Minister for Fashion. Says you. Um, <laughs> what, what, is, what is the first thing... You, I mean, I don't even know how you're still getting clothes from CNA in 2019. Yeah, all right. So the first thing is that I would get the entire government sewing. So, you know, during those boring sessions, at least mend your clothes. But really what I would do um, on a serious level would be all around education. So first of all, I believe that we need to reintroduce the arts with a particular focus on making into schools. You know, that should be back in the curricula. And in fact, I'm very proud to say that we collaborated with the environmental um, audit committee and Mary Cray uh, very closely um, on, on the committee. And I'm delighted that that was also one of their recommendations. I believe that, you know, we cannot, simply cannot imagine a future with, you know, with us nurturing generations that can do little more but just scrolling. So back to making. Ursula de Castro, thank you so much. Thank you. And joining us now in Jeff's house is Mary Cray, Labour MP for Wakefield, Chair of the Environmental Audit Committee. And Jeff, I can tell you there's something about Mary. There is something about Mary. She, 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 you know, Mary Cray is such a multi-talented woman that she is, she arrived and I found her mending your hedge if that's not the wrong way of putting it <laughs> yeah my my, my hedge is it looks like it's been fossilized it's it's um, been hit by a certain type of green caterpillar i believe which is terrorizing hedges in north london but mary has solutions for me so thank you look let me just tell you about mary she saved the forests yeah where, when she was shadow defra spokeswoman yes. so a hedge should be easy then yeah right? so, 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 no she, she saved the badgers ish yeah, well, they, mm. the Badgers moved the goalposts, so we got <laughs> right. rid of Caroline Spellman and Owen right. Patterson, but yeah. I tell you, she can definitely save your head. Okay. <laughs> You're going to save his head, aren't you, Defo. Mary? We've got We've got solutions. Good. Great. But we're here to talk about your inquiry that you've done as chair of the Environmental Audit Committee into fast fashion. Yeah. Uh, which is our subject this week. Tell us about why you did the inquiry. Well, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation did a report that said if our current fashion consumption carries along its same path, it will be a quarter of our carbon budget by 2050. Jesus. I know. And it's it's more than aviation and shipping at the moment. Yeah, combined. Combined. So it's like you think about all of the flights 
flights and how guilty yeah, you feel about the yeah. flights. I mean, obviously, you're not wearing all of the clothes yeah. in the world, so you don't have to feel guilty about the clothes you're wearing. But um, I feel has... guilty about quite a lot of my clothes. Yeah, you that's... should. <laughs> Crimes against but that's fashion. That's reasons I've gotten more of another reason to feel guilty, a more important reason to feel guilty. <laughs> I think it's nice that your mum still dresses. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you rotter. He's looking quite decent this morning. No, I think I'm the example of slow fashion. I think you're right. Oh, yeah, you're, you're... I've still got my Oxford University Labour Club t-shirt from 25 years ago. I've still got my anti-apartheid t-shirt wow, from 1990. Weird. So look, we all have these heritage garments. And the thing is, we need more heritage garments. We want the stuff that you think, I can't get rid of those socks because I walked up the Himalaya in them. They're red, they're wool, they've got a massive hole in them. But Well, I mean, that's good. I, yeah, but I'm going to keep them and I'm going to, one day I'll darn them. Someone taught me how to darn, but I, I don't want And to we do. are the worst in Europe, are we? Yeah, so we consume twice as many clothes as the Italians and they don't look shabby, do they? They certainly don't. No, in fact, exactly. Italian men always look miles better than us. So we're overbuying, we're underutilising, and what that means is all our wardrobes are stuffed full of clothes that we don't wear. So a quarter of the British wardrobe isn't worn. What are we going to do then? Well, what's the sustainable fashion industry? Well, fashion, look, they've been marking their own homework for years. So all they sell us is fun, frocks, frills, cheap frills is what I wanted to call the report, but they wouldn't have me. Let me do it. <laughs> it's like, come on, let's have a pun. I did get the only pink report that's I ever been published that. by the House well, of Commons. I think they call that millennial pink. Is that, yeah. is that, yeah, milkshake milk pink. There are many solutions. So fashion's basically like, we've signed up to um, the Sustainable Clothing Action Plan, and that means we're going to reduce our waste water and carbon footprints. And then we looked at how well they'd done and they had reduced some of their water footprints. They had reduced their carbon footprints, although how do they measure the carbon? We can get into scope three emissions if you want to. Waste, it was like, we haven't tackled waste. So what we said is a penny on every garment. That would raise £35 million a year and they would have to collect their own waste back in store. Now, some stores already do this, H&M. H&M encourages you to bring back your clothes, to take back your clothes so that they can be recycled. Arcadia or the Topshop doesn't. So they've got one take back. And what would your levy do? So it would raise £35 million. So it basically says you have to start collecting them. You have to start collecting points in every store, in oh, every city. And then every city would then have, um, you know, 10,000 tonnes of textiles a year to deal with. Or you and then bring back any clothes or just ones. Any clothes. And the difficult things no, is, you know, what do you do clothes. with your ratty old knickers? What do you do with your socks with your holes in it? It's like you can't give them to the charity shop. It's too embarrassing. Yeah. They have a value as a fabric, as a stuffing. Etc. So, so, re- so recycling them is part recycling. Of- so charity shop recycling. What else? We want people to reconnect with their clothes. So this is quite hard. But when I was at school, and perhaps you as well, as well I don't, did you learn embroidery? Did you, or you probably did woodwork? I did sewing. I did I knitting. Really cool. I did embroidery. Yeah. I did you? Really, yeah, yeah. Good man. I was really bad. At, I wasn't good at woodwork it. and metalwork. I don't think we did embroidery. Yeah. But, yeah. but I think we had the choice and given the choice between woodwork, yeah. metalwork, and embroidery. I thought I'm more of an embroidery kid. So we don't teach our kids that stuff anymore. And all that the children are being taught is, you know, get your in- Instagram photo out. The girls are being taught to consume it, to buy it online, to get into debt, to wear it wants to send it back huge carbon footprint with these online deliveries as well um, much less efficient than going into a store and so what we're saying is teach kids how to make make amend their own clothes and then when they realize how much making and work goes into something they won't be as keen to just chuck it in the bin how do we sort the environmental part of this i mean is it just a big cultural change i mean you're you're quite clear aren't you that it's not just about leaving it to individuals although you talked about individuals but it's, you know you need government also to do its bit the government's just announced these um, 12,000 companies are going to have to report their greenhouse gas emissions. Well, the, the government announced that they all had to report on modern slavery, but Foot Locker and Versace haven't got that statement on their forward-facing web- website. So that you announce stuff, and then if you don't actually monitor and order, audit it, you, you know, the good ones do it and the bad ones get a free pass. So if we're going to create regulations and we're going to measure carbon, then they've got to, it's got to be part of their annual accounts. And what you're, it, it should be alongside your physical accounts. And you basically say, this is what our stores in the UK use. This is what our mobile delivery service used. This is what our ship coming from China or our plane coming from Turkey used. And uh, these are what our factories used over wherever they are. And you start measuring that and then you say, we're going to reduce that footprint. And then you've got a plan of how you're going to do it. Now, we've got a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is Jeff as the supreme ruler. 
Um, I'm very hands off. I would be very busy tending to my. Uh, what, what it turns out hedge. isn't a private head. Yeah, uh, he'd be he'd be sort of battling the caterpillars. If if he made you minister for the environment with special responsibility for fashion, what's the first thing you do? And by, by the way, Mary, there's going to be no sort of issues of having to sort of. You know, Jeff will just say, Jeff will just take it off. In the fashion space, I think we have to. You're unconstrained. You don't. You don't have to worry about your select committee keeping everyone on board. No, no, no. Well, that's great. I would. I would bring in this extended producer responsibility, and I would probably not make it a penny a garment. What, I'd make it two or five p a garment, or even ten. And, or ramp it up over five yeah, years. And what? And what would extended producer responsibility mean? That creates the money for the industry to work out how it's going to recycle and reuse its clothes and incentivize them to make less you could even have a percentage couldn't you it you doesn't could. need to be a flat fee it's so the more simpler. expensive clothes yeah but true but it's more expensive could, clothes. yeah they'll game it if you do it on retail this is price. what it used to be like with mary and i <laughs> yeah yeah we'd have these <laughs> uh, i ideas. would have these like slightly nerdy kind of oh perhaps we do as a percentage yeah uh, so, so oh. valentino pays more i'm i'm sure if you're spending 500 quid on a valentino jumper you're probably not chucking it out to the charity shop or if you right, are you're I doing see. it as an auction you know so i don't think they're not the problem the problem is the volume when you go in and it's the it's the it's the fact that we don't wear stuff. So it's about trying to change our mindset as well. And that whole thing about, you know, being closer to our clothes and understand and appreciating the value of the work. And it's mostly women's work. This is women's manual labour we're talking about that goes into it. And I think uh, the other thing I would do is compulsory knitting classes because knitting is a brilliant protection against depression there's been studies done into it it's just so soothing and satisfying and i would like us to have knitting in the commons knitting in the commons la tricoteuse <laughs> knitting with mary mary cray you have been something special as always thank you so much for joining us so what did you think well, it was an eye-opener. I had no idea before we started looking yeah. into this week's episode of the impact that the fashion industry made environmentally. And I think there are a lot of good ideas we heard about what the individual can do, but this this needs regulation, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I really like the sort of Lucy Siegel sort of big hammer. Yeah. Of all areas, this is an area where individuals' behaviour can definitely make a difference. But as I've said before in relation to... So carbon emissions and climate change. I think this is an area where you do need system change. And so I really like some of Lucy's ideas, particularly on this. It sounds like a really interventionist thing, but this volume thing, or even my, you know, the slight variant, which is the carbon budgets, you know, the fashion industry would have to just be within certain carbon budgets. I mean, I think I think you do need system change, but obviously as individuals, uh, we can make a difference. Now, Depop might not necessarily do it for me uh, because it's about sort of 30 years younger than me uh, in terms of the age range. Um, but I think thinking about what we what we do ourselves is also important. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you've got thoughts on uh, fast fashion, my fashion, Jeff's fashion, or fashion, or any other ideas for future episodes, please do get in touch. Reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com, at cheerfulpodcast on Twitter, and on Instagram, and facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. Big response to our episode on university admissions. This is from Phil in Salford. Dear Ed and Jeff, thanks for making the podcast almost exactly the same length as my cycle commute. I listened with great interest to episode 87. You wouldn't believe the amount of observing you on your commute we've yeah, had to do to get the data to get it to exactly the right length. Yeah, those sort of, you know, cameras and all that. It's a topic I feel passionate about. Uh, the crucial point is it's that is always left out in these debates is the disparity in applications to Oxbridge between state and privately educated pupils really matters. If you don't apply, you don't go. Using statistics published by Oxford and the Office for National Statistics, it's easy to show that private educated pupils are over three times more likely to apply to Oxford than state school pupils, around 1 in 10 compared to less than 1 in 30. Taking that into account gives around a 1 in 5 chance of being accepted if you're state educated compared to a 1 in 4 chance if you're privately educated. Not such a huge difference after all, much of which can be explained by differences in subject – State-educated pupils favour courses such as medicine that are oversubscribed, while privately-educated pupils favour courses such as classics that are undersubscribed. When you hear the experience of the brightest state-educated students, such as V, the difference in applications is hardly surprising. Too many state schools are not encouraging their brightest pupils to apply, and in some cases are actively discouraging them. This is not Oxford's fault or responsibility. All in all, Oxford and Cambridge come under huge criticism for biases that are neither as big as they seem nor their making. We should instead be focusing on providing support to every secondary school in the country so they can provide support for their brightest students with highest aspirations. That's what I think anyway. Carry on. So what do I think about Phil's uh, comment? I think it's right to say that we should think about who applies. I think it's worth saying, though, that according to the Sutton Trust, even on the basis of who applies, if you look at uh, Oxbridge uh, acceptance rates, uh, about uh, 22% of those from comprehensives get accepted compared to a third, 34% of those from independent schools. Uh, So there is still uh, a difference. And secondly, you know, we need to invest in state schools so that, um, you know, among other things, they can uh, help people to apply. But I think Oxbridge also has a responsibility because there are people who think Oxbridge isn't for them because of its image. And and Oxbridge is partly responsible for that, and they've got to do more to get out there and engage with people. And then, given that the acceptance rates are still different, they've got to think about, you know, the whole design of their interview and other processes as to who gets in and who doesn't. This comes from Olivia Rainford, and this is um, sort of reflective of a few emails that we received. Uh, Olivia says, I'm the head of alumni and fundraising at London South Bank University. We've won University of the Year for two years running to to no avail with regard to the ridiculous connotations of widening access and the concept of top universities. And I was disappointed to not hear any reference to non-Russell Group institutions. There are many points to share. But at the very least, I would like to see broadcast agendas on social mobility, talking to those of us delivering social mobility. I'd be happy to introduce you to the phenomenal stories that showcase how gaining a degree is not fundamentally an elitist structure. Um, and this this is something we, we sort of talked about. And, and the, the fact is that the elite at the moment, as it stands, come from Oxford and Cambridge. Now, that's a problem in itself, and that's worth an episode or multiple episodes probably in itself. But just on that issue, as the system is what it is, what can be done to broaden the pool uh, from from which that elite is drawn? That's that's what we're trying to get at it with the episode. Yeah, it? and I just don't, I, you know, I think it's a right, correct point to say one mustn't just buy into the only kind of decent universities of the Russell Group, etc., or the notion that they're necessarily the top, and I think that's a kind of well-pointed po- out point. But the fact is that the structure of our society at the moment tends to really help people who get into those top universities, so-called top universities, and, you know, we need to address that issue as well as addressing all of the 
you know society structures but it was just it, i don't want people to think it's our is our only and last word on universities no, no. You know, that was just that that one particular issue of how do you broaden access to those universities and then hopefully the elite looks more representative but i think there's a fair point which is the elite shouldn't yeah. just come from those no, universities and we, yeah, totally, yeah, yeah. and we totally and we totally buy that and that point is well taken uh this one comes from martha powell uh, dear Ed and Jeff, I enjoyed the recent episode on access to the top universities, particularly V's experience, which I'm sure is mirrored in state schools across the UK. I also attended a state school, and with regards to university admissions, applying to Oxford, Oxbridge had a very different impact that I thought I would share. In our school, how many students applied, got interviews out, and ultimately got into Oxbridge was a measure of success for the sixth form. Thus, students planning on applying to Oxbridge got extra tuition, interview prep, and personal statement classes. I made a conscious choice not to apply for Oxbridge. It seemed too high pressure. However, this decision caused me and many other pupils who had made this call to miss out on this help with the university admissions program process leaving us more or less on our own it's absolutely an issue that students at v were told no to apply to oxbridge as a result of their circumstances and education but i think the perception surrounding oxbridge and the achievement schools feel when one of their students does get in can disadvantage state school students in more than one way i think that's a really interesting point i mean does you know these three contributions do show some of the complexity of this issue and we're not done with universities and we're certainly not done with. we did one already on universities actually uh, on marketization of universities but we'll, we'll also come back to some of these issues Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcasts or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. Before we move on to ideas, which uh, hopefully will be reasons to be cheerful and make the country and the world a better place, Ed, are you looking forward to our live show on the South Bank? Well, Jeff, let, let me tell you, let, let me tell you, throw it away, what an absolute privilege. It's gonna be for for me and you. I'm just it's just gonna be so great. I, I can't even tell you. Yeah. All right. All right. How, how are you feeling? How are you feeling? All about, right. This is Josh Berry. How are you feeling about Josh's yeah. impersonation of I you? I don't like him already. He hasn't, <laughs> he hasn't hit me yet. What, what is what is the key to what's the key to Sorry. doing Ed then? Adenoids. You you got the throat away. It's exactly that. Just full of adenoidal. Do you feel like you need to inhabit Ed's physicality when you're doing an impersonation? Are you watching? mannerisms as well is there some key to sort of unlocking them yeah I, th- I think it depends on the person actually i wouldn't say ed you have as many sort of physical ticks but certainly some people do like <laughs> he said just twitching you know i think andy murray is a really good example of someone who's sort of that physicality just rubbing your face all the time is a really good you know he he has a lot of physical ticks, but not everyone does and is it the case that you generally sort of either get it or you don't i mean is it, in other words is it is some, that's true of life Jeff. is it something <laughs> yeah do you need to work on an impersonation for a long time or do you just think oh yeah i can get that person quite easily i think it depends on the, on the person sometimes uh, wonderfully it can happen really quickly like uh, you know when i first learned to do prince harry it sort of happened pretty fast and i was like whoa you know I sound as though I could do with a, a packet full of strepsils. Um, <laughs> but other people are sort of works in progress for a much longer time and take take ages to refine. Who are you struggling with at the moment? Well, I, I, I struggled with Russell Brand for a while, but I, I would hope, like to think that it's at a, a good level now. Or uh, he's one of my uh, he's one of my laws. So sh- should we should we get into that? Should oh, okay. We... So you, you've come along with some ideas. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so why, why why don't we start with the one which some way involves Russell Brand? I thought I was quite a liberal guy before coming on here, but a lot of these are sort of based around censorship. And <laughs> this first one is put a cap on the amount of media exposure that Russell Brand gets in a year. Um, I I just I'm a bit sick of him you know, kind of giving his theories on life and sort of, you know, on his podcast being like, you know, inherently, mate, I think that life is sort of intrinsically, in life just a bit thesaurus and colonoscopy and synonyms, really, mate? Because what is it? It's just some sort of spirituality, isn't it? I don't know. I just don't think there's much substance. So he, he, he kind of goes from high to, to low then? Yeah, he's got lots of different voices. So there's always that, you know, I suppose really intrinsically, there's that one. And and then there's the much more sort of breathy one, you know, where he's doing <laughs> naughty things on the radio, which we probably shouldn't talk about. Whoa! All right, Josh, what else do you have? I, w- I would like on the on the syllabus to teach children uh, in primary schools philosophy. I think that would be a, a really beneficial thing for for broader learning and sort of a style of style of thinking. Can you do your Wittgenstein first, please? <laughs> that impression, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I 
You've, you've teed me up there. I can give you some David Mitchell instead. Uh, <laughs> Nearly. Uh, let's be honest, who would even want to hear that? Just a nasal voice going on and on repeatedly. There you go. I gave you another impression. Thank you. <laughs> Are you ever tempted to give voices to historical characters, though? Well, nobody could, like, countermand you on Wittgenstein. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I don't know how big a market there is for Wittgenstein. It, Wittgenstein impressions. Yeah. Could be my next Edinburgh show. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Why do you want to teach um, children philosophy? I I just think it's a style of thinking that would really benefit them going through life. It just not in terms of you know I'm not asking them to look at sort of ethical proofs and you know critique religious philosophical ideas, but it's more just getting children to question knowledge and not take knowledge for granted, which I think is a really beneficial attitude. That's I'm into it. What's Good. next? I'm I'm pleased. I would like for there to be an Andy Murray Day. Uh, every year and this is yes an obvious way for me to shoehorn in you know my impression of andy murray which i'm now doing uh but i think as i continue in andy murray that you know boxing day what do we really use it for we could just sort of share that holiday with andy murray every other year you know is he your greatest hit uh, you get a lot of work out of it, Josh. I can't help feeling, wouldn't you? If there's yeah, international, well, if there's yeah. international Andy Murray Day. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. But you know, we're all constrained by capitalism at the end of the day. And really. you do you do a radio show as Andy Murray? I I do. I I used to. Yeah. Now and now he features in it. He features in the new uh, series, which is called Josh Berry's uh, Fake News, which. Yeah, throws him in. And have you had any personal contact with Andy Murray? I have also had personal contact. Have yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, I did. Rather like this wonderful yeah. thing we had earlier, I did a, an impression of him to him, which was which was good fun. Was he appreciative? He was, more so than you. Oh. <laughs> Is there anybody whose impression of them you wouldn't want them to hear? Probably Ed's, actually, in hindsight. Um, <laughs> my Jacob Rees-Mogg is not the most flattering, and that's the one we're going to come on to in a minute. But I don't know. I think, I think it, it, it is... Possibly. I think it's quite a flattering thing if someone's taken the time to, you know, learn your voice. I'm flattered. Thank you, Ed. Yeah. I'm, I'm pleased. Definitely flattered. <laughs> well, well, you've dangled a carrot there for us. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so let's let's hear this idea then. I would like for uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg to be followed around by a fact checker. Now, practically, I'm not sure how this will work, but this is kind of inspired by a specific instance. I don't know if you saw on Question Time a few months ago, he um, said of Burwall concentration camps. Well, you know, the, the death rate was actually the same as in Glasgow. The problem with Mogg is that he's so charismatic and has such a confidence that I think people just trust innately, you know, what, what he's saying, because he's telling you he's right. Your Jacob Rees-Mogg is very good. Well, thank you very much. Do you do any other politicians? <laughs> you know, I think everyone's got a Donald Trump. Everyone right. sort of, all the impressionists do that one. It's pretty standard. Uh, Boris, of course. <laughs> you know, you don't need to to uh, to say words. You can just go. And of course, Theresa May. Boo-hoo. So, so Josh, if people want to enjoy more of your work, uh, how can they? Uh, how can they experience that? Well, they can experience it through their ears uh, on on Apple Podcasts. Uh, um, comes to the end of my series, uh, Josh Berry's Fake News on Union Jet Radio, which has been a lot of fun. Uh, and please do buy tickets to come and watch me visually and experience me hourly and with all of your senses <laughs> uh, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Josh Berry, thanks so much. Thanks for, thanks for coming. Thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, over the course of the podcast, there has been a development about where you've had Blow Me Down from. Wow, Blow Me Down. It's the unmistakable voice of Popeye the Sailor Man. Yeah, and the good thing about the internet is it can sort of lead you to believe anything. So there <laughs> some, seems to be some school of thought that it originated from a 1933 Popeye film called Blow Me Down. Oh, there we go. Well, blow Me Down. Well, yeah. And it's good to see that you're keeping it alive 90, almost 90 uh, years How did later. you feel about Popeye? Uh, I, I liked... I'm strong to the finish because I eat Smith spinach. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. Doot, doot. I have to say it's not your strongest impersonation, really. I mean, it was a nice rendition of the song, but I don't think you had What did you think of the... Now, that was good. Yeah, yeah. I'm good at my... (laughs) (laughs) Should I do my... With my... (laughs) Yeah, maybe throw in a bit of Boots and Cats as well. Maybe I should release it as a Christmas record. Yeah, or maybe you should do it on stage at the next live show. (laughs) Perhaps not. Yeah. 
You know, it's like, you know, it's like when you've got that kind of genius, you can't have it sort of forced, you know, it's just got to no, come. No, it's a gift. It's, gotta, it's, it's got, a gift. No, but it's got to sort of come up through your waters. You yeah, know, but you we... don't want to hide your light under a bushel. The public, mm, you know, we, we're living through troubling times. No, and, that's true. You know, people, people need you to share your gift with them, Ed. Yeah, my gift. Yep. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we should thank our guests. So Lucy Siegel, I thought, was wonderful with her sort of strong... It was the iron fist, really, wasn't it? Yeah. For, for dealing with the uh, with the fashion industry, uh, Ursula de Castro from Fashion Revolution was marvelous. Yeah. Uh, as and was Mary, Mary. Cray, yeah. who's dealing with utopiary. She is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she's basically got an idea that when when she teaches us how to get rid of the the box moth, the killer caterpillar, the killer caterpillar from our hedge. She she then is going to help us sculpt it in true topiary style into into, into your head in hedge form. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, no, of course I'm not serious. <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely Honestly, think you would like that. I do. Turning I'd be, up every week. I can have a selfie with it. <laughs> Well, if anybody, you know, if anybody... And also, if I, if, you know, if for some reason I was indisposed one week, the hedge would fill in for me. <laughs> if, if anybody's listening to this who's good at topiary, if you were willing to cut your own hedge, not mine, into Ed's head, would you go and have a selfie with it? I'd take it under advisement. <laughs> I've learned my lesson. And uh, thanks to Josh Berry as well, who could also stand in for you. Yeah. If you're not here one week. Emma Corsham produced our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Ed C. did our music. James Deacon did our idents. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. And our artwork is done by Emily Power. You did that rather well. Thank you. I never usually get to do that, so I thought I'd do it with a bit of gusto. You did do it with a bit of gusto. He's been strung to the finish because he eats his spinach. He's been doot-doot. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else custom spray five and one only from rustoleum when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89 percent off usps and ups make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.